1: p.m. at 9 p.m. National Weather Service Doppler radar indicated a severe thunderstorm capable of producing a tornado.
0: Mike Moore and his wife Lou, with their two children, Bonnie Lou, aged four, and three-month-old Tara Dawn, had gone on an overnight camping trip on the Green River Trail about 13 miles from the great mountain that seemed to cast a shadow upon all of them. Thirty miles from the mountain were Bruce Nelson and Sue West, along with two others, were camping as well when a crack ripped across the air and the world around them shifted as the mountain itself seemed to move and explode outward. Midnight descends upon them in an instant as billowing clouds of gray ash swept across the state of Washington and towards Idaho and Montana. No matter how sudden the eruption of Mount St. Helens seemed, the 9677 foot volcano had given the people of Washington almost two months of warning. Had the warnings been headed, who knows what could have happened? Would the 57 lives claimed in the disaster have been saved? We will never know. The eruption of Mount St. Helens on May 18, 1980 was a deadly reminder that no matter how peaceful things might appear, danger is always lurking beneath the surface. Mount St. Helens, also known as Luala Clough or the Smoking Mountain by the Native Americans, is in the Cascade Range in Washington State. The volcano would erupt periodically throughout its creation, however. By the year 1980, the mountain had been silent for over a hundred years, and a strange sense of safety had begun to take root amongst those that lived in its shadow. Volcanoes, by definition, are vents in the earth's crust from which erupts, molten rock, hot rock fragments, and hot gases. The word volcano derives from the late 18th century French word, volcanique, which in turn comes from the Latin word volcanus, or vulcan, the Roman god of fire. They feature prominently in the mythology of many cultures, and those that have been raised in the shadow of these sleeping giants learn to live in the aftermath of their chaotic eruptions. The study of volcanoes is volcanology. However, the study of volcanoes cannot be condensed into one area of study. There are several specialties who find themselves closely linked to volcanology. Geophysicists and geochemists probe the deep roots of the volcanoes to figure out when the next eruption might be. Geologists decipher prehistoric volcanic activity and what patterns might be found to estimate the devastation of what is to come. Biologists learn how eruptions affect plant and animal life. Meteorologists determine the effects of volcanic dust and gases in the atmosphere. While what we are going to see today is the dangerous nature of these powerful geological formations, volcanoes do not just offer destruction. Volcanoes also provide fertile soil, valuable mineral deposits, geothermal energy, and, sometimes, a beautiful view. The first indication that something was wrong with the seemingly dormant volcano was on March 16, 1980. A hundred earthquakes were recorded in one week. A former U.S. Forest Service worker remembered these earthquakes occurring in unusual places on the mountain. On March 24, there were as many as 20 earthquakes in an hour recorded at the mountain. March 27 was the first eruption in over a hundred years. While it was not as devastating as what was to come, The steam explosions created a 250-foot-wide crater. March 28th, 12 more explosions. March 30th, 93 explosions. April 1st, plumes of steam and ash reached 20,000 feet. April 3rd, the 250-foot crater grew to be 1,300 feet. The change in the mountain did not go unnoticed by those who were used to it. They noted not only the crater, but the huge bulge had begun to form on the north face of the volcano. It has
1: been more than a hundred years since Mount St. Helens last erupted, but the mountain is still an active volcano, and it has been giving off steam for the past five years. The mountain has been hit by several moderate earthquakes since last week, and a series of minor quakes continue. Scientists believe there's a chance those quake mean an eruption is near. Early today, scientists set up monitoring equipment like this at three locations around the mountain. They say those small earthquakes are continuing at the unusual rate of nearly 40 per minute. The sensitive equipment, powered by automobile batteries, recorded two more quakes today. Sensors have been buried in the ground as scientists continue to study the data. The U.S. Forest Service is warning skiers to stay out of the area, since the quakes have increased the danger of avalanches. There have already been a number of snowslides, but no injuries. If there is an eruption, it could threaten a number of small towns nearby, like Cougar, Washington, population 80. Some of the people here think the mountain will blow its top. Some of them don't but not too many seem worried. Logger Jim Picker was one who felt the earthquakes. He wasn't setting a log on me at the time, so I knew mm-hmm. that it wasn't that. Yeah. And uh, especially when the, when the guy that owns the place was up the road working in the back of his pickup, and he said it started shaking around, and the shop truck was sitting there, and the door started shaking on it. and So uh, he came running down there, and he says, I know it was an earthquake, and then uh, when I put two and two together, well, I figured, well, it must have been, because I felt it too. So. There could be a small eruption, but I don't think it's going to do anything significant or lava flow like it did years and years ago. All of the publicity could have a positive effect on the town of Cougar, an increase in business for places like A&R Groceries. Yeah, it'll be great for business, which is really good. Uh, It's like I said, they usually start coming up on Friday anyway. We'll probably be loaded this week with people coming up.
0: April 9th. A series of explosions lasted for four hours, the longest since the volcano had come back to life. April 22nd. By now, the near hourly eruptions began to dwindle to one per day. The University of Washington took greater note of the bulge and saw that it was growing six feet a day due to the magma rising high into the volcano. May 7th through May 17th. Small eruptions resumed. Over 10,000 earthquakes occurred. By May 13th, officials had finally begun to discuss hazard zones, but none that would help for what was to come. On May 18th, 1980, the day was barely starting, and breakfast had only just been served at 8.32 a.m. when a 5.1 magnitude earthquake struck the mountain. The bulge on the northern face of the mountain slid away as a huge landslide began, the largest debris avalanche ever recorded. The giant landslide of rock and ice was soon followed and overtaken by an enormous explosion of steam and volcanic gases. The Moore family rushed to safety from their campsite when they saw the blast. It was the blackest black I've ever seen in my life, Mike Moore said. There really wasn't time for being particularly scared, his wife added. They took shelter in an elk hunter's cabin from the blast that accelerated the avalanche's debris to more than 300 miles per hour. The landslide debris was liquefied by the violent explosion, and the avalanche flooded the lake and rushed down the valley of the Tootle River. Mudflow, flow, pyroclastic flow and floods added to the destruction, destroying roads, bridges, parks, and thousands more acres of forest. However, the smoke and landslides themselves weren't the only thing they needed to worry about. The blast devastated the area surrounding the mountain. Within six miles, virtually none of the trees of the once-dense forest remained. The trees that did manage to survive were blown down, and the blast's outer limits seared the remaining trees with its heat. Those falling trees might have been what saved Bruce Nelson and Sue West. We were hit by a shockwave, which blew everything down, Nelson said. We couldn't see it because smoke came in at the same time. It was a shockwave, and we realized at the time that we had been buried. All those trees... They came down in all directions, all the way around, but... but nothing hit us. Ash started falling through the trees after that. Wade told him to dig and keep digging. Nelson then went on to say, And we dug for at least five minutes, probably more, toward eight. And we finally... I climbed out through the top. You could feel the cool air after we climbed out. I reached down and pulled her out, but we could not see anything. It was total darkness, because of the ash in the air." Pyroclastic flows poured out from the now-opened crater at 50 to 18 miles per hour and spread five miles to the north, creating the Pumice Plain. The prevailing winds created in the aftershock blew millions of tons of ash eastward across the United States and brought complete darkness to the area of eastern Washington. We sat up on this hillside for at least an hour and a half, praying the ash and smoke would clear, so we could see. Nelson continued, There was no visibility whatsoever. We were completely blindfolded. We sat on the hillside for approximately an hour and a half. We climbed back down, back to the camp, and we realized the camp was completely underneath.
2: Underneath the timber. You know, listener, sometimes I get depressed. I was diagnosed with depression and anxiety at a young age. And I've been dealing with it my whole life. That's where talk space comes in. Whenever I need to talk to someone, and talk to someone quick... Talkspace has my back. It's made a huge difference in my life, and it's accessible and affordable. At Talkspace.com, you could sign up online and get a personalized match with a provider that's right for you, typically within 48 hours. It's incredibly convenient to have virtual sessions with your licensed therapist from the comfort of your own home. There's no need to commute to appointments, miss time at work, or line up childcare in order to attend sessions. It's mental health care made easy, and Talkspace is secure and private, using the latest end-to-end bank-grade encryption technology to store client information and complying with the latest HIPAA regulations. Talkspace is affordable and in-network with most major insurers. Now, as a listener of this podcast, you'll get $100 off your first month with Talkspace when you go to Talkspace.com and use code DISASTER to match with a licensed therapist today, go to Talkspace.com and use code DISASTER to get $100 off your first month and show your support for this show. That's Disaster at Talkspace.com.
0: A violent mudflow of hot rocks and gas melted snow and ice and went down the river valleys around the volcano. The largest occurred in the North Fork of the Tootle River, which destroyed bridges and homes. Nelson then spoke about the two of his fellow campers that were buried to death beneath the heat wave that came from the volcano's blast. When it cleared enough, we realized that the heat wave must have gone through, after we had been buried, because there wasn't one green needle left on any of the fir trees or cedar trees. Being buried alive, yes, I believe that saves us from being burned as bad as they were. The two walked fourteen hours through hot ash and fallen trees to get to safety, and along the way... Rescued another member of their party. Miles away, the Moore family clambered through the twisted trees to about half a mile from their car, where they were spotted by rescuers and plucked to safety by a helicopter and taken to Longview Hospital for observation. Despite the ample warning signs the volcano gave toward the coming disaster, 57 people lost their lives. By the late afternoon of May 18th, the eruption was over, and by the next day, the fallout of the ash had subsided. In the aftermath, the volcanic cone of Mount St. Helens was completely blasted away and replaced by a horseshoe-shaped crater. The mountain itself lost one, 7,000 feet in the eruption. The devastation served as a dark reminder of the threat volcanoes could be. It caused almost $2.7 billion in damages and marred the volcano's northern flank. The surrounding area became a sort of moonscape that is still recovering to this day. Throughout the rest of the year, smaller eruptions continued, producing pyroclastic flows and windblown ash. By October, the crater had begun to create a new lava dome that grew nearly 1,000 feet. President Jimmy Carter declared the state of Washington a major disaster area and visited to see the aftermath. Al Handy, 34, was a grocery warehouseman. He had been camping with his friend Clyde Croft, 37, near the Polar Star Mine on the Green River. Handy had run towards the mine to take shelter, but died of ash asphyxiation about 20 yards from the entrance. Croft managed to walk eight miles before the ash in his lungs made it impossible for him to breathe. The Vietnam vet was found near the edge of the road he had been walking. Bradley Carr, 37, and his sons Andrew 11 and Michael 9 were camping four miles from the mountain. What was meant to be a bonding trip between father and sons ended in tragedy, as Bradley tried desperately to get his sons to their car to rush them to safety. Michael was found on the floor of the truck, Andrew was found in the cargo bed of the pickup, and Bradley was found on the slope near their car. Arlene Edwards, 37, and her daughter Jolene, 19, were ten miles from the mountain up a three, 800-foot summit to take pictures when the eruption blasted Arlene from her place and into the hemlock trees below where she died from chest injuries. Her daughter died of ash asphyxiation after she was blown down into some other trees. Ronald Siebold, 41, his wife Barbara, 33, and Barbara's children Kevin, 7, and Michelle, 9, were all killed after taking several photos of the blast cloud before it overtook them, not knowing that the very ash they were documenting would cause them to asphyxiate. Bob Casewetter, 39, and his girlfriend Beverly Weatheralt, 35, were buried alive when the north flank of the volcano collapsed. The body of Bruce Fattis, 26, was never found. He was last seen the day prior to the explosion eight miles west of the volcano. John Killian, 29, and his wife Christy, 20, had only been married seven months when they went camping nine miles from the mountain. John's body was never found, and Christy's body was only identified by the wedding band on her left hand. Dave Johnston, 30, was a volcanologist who had been monitoring Mount St. Helens for signs of an eruption from a ridge five miles north of the mountain. His body was never recovered. Donald Selby, 48, died from traumatic injuries suffered in the blast. Edward Murphy, 62, and Eleanor, 57, were never seen again after the blast. Fred Rollins, 58, and his wife Marjorie, 52, attempted to drive away from the blast cloud. However, even at 80 miles per hour, the cloud overtook them, And Fred died of burns and asphyxiation just outside the car, and Marjorie died of asphyxiation still in the passenger seat. Jerry Martin, 64, was a volunteer ham radio operator who was monitoring the mountain for the Radio Amateur Civil Emergency Service. As the eruption began, he reported Gentlemen, the camper and car that's sitting over to the south of me is covered. It's going to hit me too. He was never seen again. Harold Kirkpatrick, 33, and his cousin Joyce, 33, Both died of ash asphyxiation. The only miracle, for what it is worth, is that Joyce would often take her daughter and two sons camping, but they had been unable to make it that weekend. James Toot, 56, and Velvedia, 52, were last seen driving about 13 miles west of the volcano. Their bodies were never found. Leonti Skorahodov, 30, Evlanti Sharapov, 41, and Jose Dias, 33, were part of a four-man logging team. They survived the initial blast in their car, although they suffered bad burns. They then began to make their way down the logging road. Sharapov broke from the group, and Diaz later did the same. Sharapov climbed a hemlock tree and died of ash asphyxiation. Diaz was discovered by the National Guard, but died two weeks later of pulmonary and skin burns. Skorohodov died from his burns and acute pneumonia a week later. William Parker, 46, was killed from head injuries sustained by an 11 inch boulder that crashed through the roof of his pickup. His wife Jean, 56, died of asphyxiation. Jerome Moore, 45, and his wife Shirley, 49, both died of asphyxiation. Joel Colton, 29, was partially found a year later when construction workers discovered his boot, sock, and a part of his body in the mudflow along the north fork of the Tootle River. The bodies of Wally Bowers, 41, and Tom Gadwa, 35, were never found, although Bauer's wallet was found two years later. Klaus Zimmerman, 27, died of asphyxiation after his car had been hit by a mudflow. The body of Paul Schmidt, 29, was discovered two years later beneath a log by salvage cutters. Reed Blackburn, 27, suffocated in his car when it filled with ash. Jim Pluard, 60, and his wife Kathleen, 56, were never seen again. Donald Parker, 45, and his wife Natalie, 50, along with his nephew Richard, 28, died of ash asphyxiation in their cabin about nine miles from the volcano. The body of Robert Linz, 25, never recovered, although his shredded tent, pieces of his clothing, and remnants of his pickup were found. Ronald Connor, 45, died of asphyxiation. Terry Crawl, 21, and his girlfriend Karn Varner, 21, both died of head injuries caused by a large tree that fell onto their tent. As the blast cloud approached, Crawl had jumped into the tent to warn Varner. They were discovered clasped in each other's arms. They were survived by Bruce Nelson and Sue West, mentioned earlier in this episode. James Fitzgerald, 32, was working on a PhD in volcanology. When the mountain erupted, he took a series of photographs as the blast cloud approached and shoved the camera under his seat. He was found sitting in his car seven miles northwest of the mountain, dead from asphyxiation. Robert Landsberg, 48, took a series of photographs after the mountain erupted and then lay on top of his backpack in an effort to protect the film. While he died near his car of asphyxiation, his photos were later discovered and published. Harry R. Truman, 83, was the owner of the Mount St. Helens Lodge, which was just beneath the northern flank of the volcano. He had stubbornly refused to leave the area when the first earthquakes had occurred in March. He was certain that if disaster did strike, it would make its way down the other side of the mountain. He became a minor celebrity, and Americans couldn't get enough of him. Songs were written about his stubborn nature, including Ode to Harry Truman and Give Him Hell Harry. Schoolchildren wrote him letters asking that he leave the lodge, but was then buried under several hundred feet of avalanche debris when the volcano finally erupted. He was last seen the night before in his lodge, intending to wait whatever was to come. After repeated pleas to evacuate after the April earthquakes, he is quoted as saying, "...they'll never get me off this mountain. Spirit Lake and Mount S. Helens are a part of me. They're mine. They're as much a part of me as my arms and legs."